Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of a Nation on iTunes, Google Play, and on sojo.net. For more news, resources, and reflections on the nation's moral and health crisis, visit sojo.net. Today, I'm speaking with Chuck Collins about his approach to wealth inequality in his new book, The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. Great title. Bio for Chuck is, uh, he's an old friend, but I'll tell you who, who he is. Chuck Collins is the director of the program on inequality at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he co-edits the website inequality.org. He's the author of many books, including his latest, I'll say it again, The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions, in bookstores now. For more information at wealthhoarders.com. Find it there, wealthhoarders.com. Chuck, uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you, Jim. So, Chuck, let me start with this. In a time like this, um, uh, for us and all of our work, our families, our lo- lo- loved ones. How How is your spirit, Chuck? How is your spirit today? You know, I t- today I feel uh, enlivened by the possibilities, uh, you know, the pain and loss that uh, uh, that I've experienced, but also sort of the human resilience, human connections emerging in this time. I think I think it's a time of possibility. Indeed, indeed. And that's going to be going to be up to us, I think. What kind of possibilities we make of this this moment. So, you personally inherited wealth, which is the starting place for your new book, The Wealth Hoarders. Now, Chuck, we've known each other for a long time. It's great to reconnect today as we're doing. And I know some of that amazing your amazing origin story. Could you share that with our listeners? Our stories shape the rest of our lives, as you know. So how did your story shape your work and really even this book? Well, I guess it goes back a couple generations, but um, you know, my great-grandfather was the meatpacker Oscar Mayer uh, and uh, came from Germany, German Catholic immigrant coming to Chicago in the 1880s, started a butcher shop. Uh, fast forward, you know that that was a, became a very successful company, and I and and when I was twenty one, uh, it sold from transitioned from a family business to a you know bought up by a large multinational conglomerate. Um, but that transaction made our family quite wealthy. Um, so I I was somebody who I identify as being born on third base or uh, won won the lottery at birth. Uh, and and one of the ways ways it relates to this book is I I got a very inter- interesting front row seat into wealth management the the trusted advisors that are around any wealthy family who advise them on how to keep the wealthy keep the wealth growing and how to pass it on to the next generation and the and the more I learned about it the more I realized oh this is kind of a a dynasty building endeavor. Uh, and and personally, sort of chose not to benefit from that system, but uh, it did. I do feel uh, blessed, I guess, to have the insight uh, 
into how that works. Now, you, one of your earlier books was called Born on Third Base. I, I love that title as a baseball guy, as you know. What does that feel like uh, starting on third base? Well, you know, it, it, in some ways it's, it's all, it's all I know, you know, I don't have another life to compare it to, but I would say, you know, I grew up in a, in a, in a wealthy suburb of Detroit, uh, rooting for those Detroit Tigers. And actually that was a formative experience because I would go, uh, you know, at the age of seven, eight years old down to old Briggs field, Michigan Avenue and, cross cross yeah i know you do so cross the uh the racial and and sort of economic divide going from bloomfield hills michigan to downtown detroit and i think even at a young age and then later you know during the the uprising the riot, so-called riots of 1967 i started to feel like oh, there's something not 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 well here you know that there's something broken and it really has to do with that gap between Michigan Avenue and Bloomfield Hills. Um, and so, yeah, I would say I grew up kind of attuned to the dangers and downside of that inequality. And I think I had a com- confusion, shame, uh, embarrassment, even as I began to sort of understand where I fit. We grew up in the same city and had that same experience, as you know. And, and for me, it was uh, I'm now listening to my city, paying attention, watching the news, uh, reading the papers, and something really big seemed very wrong, and nobody would talk about it in my white world and church and neighborhood and uh, school. Um, uh, but you, you as a young person, you made, you just said a decision, you chose not to benefit from all that wealth. How did you do that? Well, it wasn't alone. Um, I was living and working in community with another mutual friend of ours, Chuck Mathai, who was very close to Dorothy Day, really came out of a Catholic worker movement. And I had one particular <clears throat> important couple of elders, Wally and Juanita Nelson. Uh, and I remember Juanita Nelson said to me, how, how, how long would it take you with your own labor to save that amount of money that you inherited? And I thought, well, probably a couple lifetimes. <laughs> um, and I think that they all sort of, they, they loved me and understood, you know, that this was not a terminal condition. That was a great Juanita line. You know, it, it, this inherited wealth is, it's not a terminal condition. You, you, you have some agency here. And I said, yeah, I guess so. And actually, I, I, I did think, you know, I was going to give give away this wealth, and that I was going to pass it on, and I was going to try to do it in a way that uh, honored my parents. You know, thank them for the opportunities I had, but but basically said, "Look, I want to pass the gift along." And uh, I thought, oh, "Okay, well, that will that will change my economic status significantly, and I'll just become a regular Chuck Joe Detroit kid," you know, and. I had no idea how much other advantage I had that was just completely hardwired into my life. Multi, multiple generations of economic stability, uh, being born white and male, and going to Cranbrook School and being treated like you know uh, you're going to be in charge. You know that was sort of the the socialization. So, uh, you know, I thought maybe I would change, but actually. I just came to appreciate just how much other advantage flows my way still. So um, 
how do you how do you do that? You're in a world. I know Cranbrook School. You're in a world, as you said well a few moments ago, that is showing you how to to grow wealth and 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 pass it on to protect it, protect and pass it on. So in that world, uh, it's it would be very hard, I would think, to just decide to break away from it. I mean, yeah, part of it was to have a a new community, a new family of people who understood that choice. And that's that's kind of where I was at, at age 25, age 26, living in Greenfield, Massachusetts, and surrounded by elders who, you know, weren't, weren't, weren't urging me to do anything I didn't want to do, but were kind of creating another way of looking at the world. So I think, I think it was, you know, part of becoming an adult for me was making what I thought I was doing, which was kind of making my own path. You, you talk about you know, family. It's making our own families, ex- extending our own families in the world and finding, uh, f- finding a wider sense of family, I've often felt. I, I very much, you know, I, I still have my family of origin and, you know, they, they, uh, they appreciate uh, whatever choices I've made. And I feel enriched by having this larger extended family uh, that, that uh, affirms that decision still, whatever, almost 40 years later. In fact, as you're talking, it's how we define family, how we conceive, consider family is really part of the wealth, wealth question here. So in your book, you use this term, uh, wealth defense industry. I find, I find that striking. To refer to, uh, as what you call it, a militia of tax attorneys, wealth managers, accountants, trust lawyers, and other advisors that protect the interests of a narrow set of individuals and families against the wider community interest. Share more about what you mean by the wealth defense industry and the wealth hiding system and how you became aware of its existence. Yeah. Um, well, so, uh, you know, wealthy individuals, wealthy families, they they don't accomplish uh, this alone, they have people they hire. Uh, and this is what I've come to appreciate a growing sector. Uh, and, and they're serving just to be clear, people who are, who have substantial wealth, $30 million and up, up to the billionaires. That's really the level of wealth that you need to be able to sort of afford these specialized services. Um, and they are, as you said, tax attorneys, wealth managers, people who run family offices, uh, special accountants who help design transactions. And their and their job really is to sort of make the wealthiest people on the planet appear, at least on paper, not to have a lot of money. Uh, so when the tax authorities come by, when when anybody looks, they, they, they're like, well, we, you know, there's not as much wealth here as, as, it, as you might think. Um, and going back to the family, it's very much about how do we keep this wealth within the narrow bloodline, the inherited uh, bloodline of one particular family at the expense of all the other families in the world. I like how you describe the architecture of inequality. That's a very powerful term, the architecture of inequality. Say more about that. Well, yeah, we, we, you know, we were living through this period of extraordinary and extreme inequality, uh, you know, and the pandemic has only supercharged it. But, you know, at this point, it is a system. It is a system of rules and societal practices that 
allow this wealth to flow upward. And the wealth defense industry, and I, I didn't create that term, a number of social scientists have you know, used that phrase, um, are the agents of, of inequality. They are the fixers. The, they are the professional enablers who make that possible. They're, they're, I, I jokingly say they're driving the getaway car um, when it comes to moving this money to the shadows. You, you write that the three wealthiest billionaires in the U.S., Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, and Warren Buffett, now have as much wealth as the bottom half of the U.S. population combined. That's just stunning. This, this is possible because the bottom fifth of U.S. householders are underwater with zero or negative net worth, and the next fifth have so few assets to fall back on that they live in fear of destitution or fear paycheck to pay, pay paycheck. And the next fifth have so few assets to fall back on that they live in fear of destitution. Some say living from paycheck to paycheck. Now the bottom half of the U.S. is comprised of 160 million people. How do three people amass as much wealth as 160 million people do. Explain how this extreme inequality has been made possible. Yeah, and uh, those are pre-pandemic statistics too, by the way. So, but I think that it's important to realize this didn't, you know, this has happened uh, over 40, almost 50 years, the sort of stagnant uh, falling wages and um, declining savings of people in that bottom half, um, juxtaposed with this tremendous updraft of wealth to the top. And we know uh, from research that we've done at the Institute for Policy Studies that during the first 13 months of the pandemic, the 700-odd number of billionaires in the United States have seen their wealth go up $1.6 trillion in 13 months. Uh, that the the entire bottom half of U.S. households has, you know, two point four trillion now. The the, the 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 households between the fortieth and fiftieth percentile have a little bit more savings, a little bit more retirement, but we're still talking about an extraordinary gap. Um, and as of today, this is just like literally breaking, but I'm sure it'll be true a week from now as well. There are eight centimillionaires, meaning there are now eight people in the United States with $100 million or more. Two years ago, there was only one centimillionaire, uh, Jeff Bezos. So how does it happen? It happens because the rules are tipped to funnel wealth to the top, and now it's kind of almost accelerating. And the pandemic, I'm, I'm afraid, was a, an accelerant on these existing trends. I've often felt that COVID was revelatory. COVID was revelatory uh, about what was already there. It revealed these inequities that were already there and then escalated them. How, how, how did COVID become so revelatory for what people, people like you've been saying this for a long time? We've been trying to save these things, but now the data proves, proves it. The, it's the statistics show it. The, uh, the, the facts indicate uh, the, you can't hide the inequalities and COVID was indeed, to use a religious term, 
I think, revelatory. Yeah. Uh, you know, using a medical term, it, the extreme inequalities of income and wealth and opportunity were kind of the, the pre-existing condition of our body politic as we, we went into the pandemic. We, you know, so for the bottom half of households with very little financial reserves, those households uh, suffered the most. You know, they had the least uh, protection, the least cushion uh, to, uh, to if in terms of losing income, losing jobs, um, and the people who are wealthiest, who are probably the most sequestered, protected, essentially kind of in in bubbles, saw their economic fortunes uh, accelerate. So, uh, but I think it's true. It's exposed the the racial dimensions of economic inequality, the vulnerability, the fragility of the society, uh, and. Uh, it, I think it's created a new opening uh, for understanding how inequality really, you know, costs lives, costs uh, people's life, health, and the health impacts, and hopefully strengthens our deep resolve to do something about it, re- reverse the inequalities. You know, it's often it's often been observable to a number of us how uh, those, especially. Uh, those of us that had the freedom to mostly stay home and work from home and remote jobs and all of that um, uh, uh, versus those who didn't and, and, and privilege you talked about before that's wired in to this society. COVID revealed that privilege, uh, the ability to stay home and work from home uh, and just stay put and have the world come to you uh, was a real sign of privilege that I think a lot of uh, those folks hadn't seen before or understood before. Yeah. And and I would hope that that would, you know, strengthen our resolve and commitment to, you know, improve the lives of essential frontline workers. I mean, the fact that there was this whole group of people who, uh, you know, went to work, whether it was stocking grocery shelves or, or working in health centers who, Many of them didn't have access to health insurance, had no financial reserves, didn't have any kind of sick policy if they should get sick or needed to care for a family member. So, you know, you had a third of the workforce that was incredibly at risk and vulnerable and and, and bore the brunt and is still bearing the brunt of the pandemic. Um, that that juxtaposition should should give us that is the rev, one of the revelations for sure. Now, in this extraordinary book, and it really is worth the read, The Wealth Hoarders, you identify several dangers specifically of a hidden wealth system, and I want to focus on three of them. One, first, it enables the plundering of the wealth of nations, especially hurting the world's most poor and vulnerable. Second, it allows individuals and corporations to dodge or evade their tax responsibilities, And third, it contributes to the rapid growth of income and wealth equality, inequality. And as you say, it just it just expands it upward all all the time. Uh, You are often uh, admirably described as somebody who often is speaking in plain English. You talk about complicated things, but uh, Chuck Collins speaks in plain English. So briefly explain those three dangers to us. Yeah, I mean, this hidden wealth system is the mechanism by which uh, enormous amounts of wealth are plundered from particularly countries in the global south. Uh, I tell the story of, of uh, in Angola, 
but this is true all over Latin America. There are wealthy elites and there are global corporations that operate in these countries and they move you know, a huge amount of wealth out of those countries, often secretly, often through illicit forms. So you know, if you're a dictator in a, a mineral rich country in the global South and you're often you're spiriting money out of that country using this system of shell corporations, offshore tax havens, uh, anonymous bank accounts. Uh, so, so yes, this is, this is the mechanism by which, uh, the wealth of the world, uh, the wealth of many societies is, is, is moved and plundered, um, the second issue is, yeah, this is the system by which the super wealthy avoid taxes. And, and at the global we global level, we estimate somewhere between 25 and 36 trillion, trillion with a T, dollars is hidden. Uh, it's hidden in this these offshore tax havens and the like. That's like 10 to 12% of the world's wealth. So when that money is removed from the system of taxation, then everybody else has to pay the bill uh, or experience the austerity and the budget cuts. But that's, that's you know, one of the consequences is tax evasion uh, and tax dodging. And finally, yeah, this is the system by which inequality is entrenched uh, and how these dynasties of wealth are able to survive over multiple generations. So, you know, as we're concerned about these inequalities at the global level, this system is how they are perpetuated. And so it's hard to imagine, but, you know, visualize 20 years from now, if we stay on the same trajectory that we've been on for the last 40 years, we're going to see even further concentrations of wealth and power among this global billionaire group. And it's, it's not going to look good. It's not going to, it's not going to end well in terms of where we're heading. And of course, all this relates to the political debate going on at any time. And as we know, we're in the middle of this discussion about these new, uh, this trifecta of bills, plans from the new Biden administration. And the question is, how are we going to pay for it? That's always the political debate. And I heard Janet Yellen just yesterday say uh, that corporate taxes, the revenue from corporate taxes, uh, amounts only to now 7% of federal revenues, corporate taxes, only 7% of federal re- revenues. And she's saying, so let's talk about fairness and let's talk about paying their fair share. But 7% of federal revenues is very small for all of corporate taxes combined. Yeah. And especially, uh, you know, I think in the 1950s, the share of federal revenue that came from the corporate income tax was was closer to 30%. Uh, so that's been a, a place where, and again, partic- we're not really talking about small businesses. We're talking about the largest, usually companies that work across borders. They're the ones that are most able to kind of game the system. Um, and their share of taxes, particularly in the US, just keeps going down. And actually, uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen's proposal to have a global corporate minimum tax is absolutely one of the most important things we could do. Um, most of the G7 countries are already there with us. So this is one of the ways that we can cooperate globally to create a floor so that companies just can't pit nations against one another in a race to the bottom. Of course, she's secretary 
uh, she's Secretary of the Treasury and also chair, former chair of the Federal Reserve. So she knows how these systems operate. And she's calling, talking about some basic fairness here. Now, these are deeply concerning things, which you just described, particularly for people of faith who are called to care most about the poor and vulnerable. So are these just economic equity issues or or also matters of faith. Uh, what What is, you mentioned Dorothy Day and the Catholic worker and that influence on your life. What is the faith factor here? Well, this is, this is one of the, and, and I would say this is what we're talking about here is not a sideshow. It is the main stage of what is broken and what is tearing away the fabric of our human family. Um, you know, the, the, the treasure of the commons is being plundered. The, the, the food has literally been taken from the mouths of babes. Uh, <clears throat> you know, in, in the case of Africa, for every dollar of aid that goes in, several dollars are flowing out through this system of illicit finance. So <clears throat> it's fundamentally an issue of how do we live together uh, and do we privilege and preference a very tiny slice of narrow family blood ties over the well-being of the whole human family. Uh, it just it's it's heartbreaking and it and it's fundamentally a matter of faith and justice how we how we approach this and and how quickly we try to change it. And you know, the good news is there's so there's tremendous possibility here for fixing the system. It's not it's not unfixable. It's a human created you know, system. It's a system of sin and, and, uh, destruction. And, and, you know, we, we have a role in fixing that each and every one of us. So coming from Bloomfield Hills outside Detroit, which I know, and then meeting Chuck Mathai and having conversations about Dorothy Day and the Catholic worker movement. And I remember you and I and Chuck had some of those conversations way back in the day and Chuck passed very early as we were both there for his funeral many years ago. How did it feel as a kid from your history, your family, and Bloomfield Hills when you first confronted and heard about and learned about Dorothy Day and the Catholic Worker Movement? Well, it was it was like being invited into a, a lively family, very different than you know, different than the family I grew up in. Uh, and I have I'm fortunate <laughs> because I have a wonderful. Ex- both immediate and extended family, but I was welcomed into a community of love and justice that, uh, you know, obviously had a huge impact for me. It was like being uh, seen for being a full human uh, with all my possibilities. So I, I found, I just felt lucky and blessed and great, had good fortune to have, you know, elders like Wally and Winnie Nelson and, you know, uh, some of our Cincinnati peacemaker friends as well, who, you know, just showed another path, you know, took, took my hand, if you will, and led me out of the, you know, I think I sometimes say privilege is a, is a disconnection drug. It keeps you apart from people. Wealth and privilege can create a, a boundary or a wall around your life. And the antidote is connection. And I felt welcomed and connected and you know, partly my work was working with low-income tenants, working with mobile home park residents, to work to buy their apartment buildings as cooperatives, and 
uh, by their mobile home parks as cooperatives. So I was brought into a whole body of work that gave me meaning and, and an opportunity uh, to work for justice. I want people to linger on that for a moment. Privilege is a disconnection drug, disconnecting drug, and the antidote is is connection. And Dorothy Day, uh, her mission was proximity, connection to the poor. And that connected her and all of her uh, Catholic workers to a world beyond where they had been before. So privilege, I love that, Chuck, is a disconnection drug. Let me... Let me read you a text. Preachers often read texts. Let me read you a gospel text and let you respond to it. Luke 12, 16 to 21. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And I will store all my grain and my goods and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared. Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Comment on that passage, if you would. I mean, I think in some ways that desire that to hold on tight, to hold and hoard wealth, uh, is part of that disconnection. It removing oneself from the human family, uh, trusting your treasure more than God, trusting your treasure more than relationships and and community. Um, yeah, and I feel like the challenge for people who are born in my circumstances or, or land in these circumstances is how to uh, come home to the authentic community, uh, the beloved community, how to bring the wealth out from the shadows, bring it out from the trust funds or the, uh, you know, the offshore accounts and bring it back to the community and put one's full stake in the common wheel, have, you know, including the vulnerability that that may involve and trust in the community instead of your treasure. And, you know, as we, as best we know, uh, you can't take it with you. And yet it seems like people are hoarding, you know, several lifetimes of wealth that they can't take with them when there's this community there waiting to invite them home waiting to redeploy that wealth for the health of the community. So it's almost that there's a spirituality to this and hoarding wealth produces spiritual consequences as well as economic consequences. This book is, I think, one of the best ever uh, descriptions of this system. Uh, but the book isn't just about uh, what's gone wrong. It's about you're proposing here policy solutions that would increase accountability and transparency of the wealth defense industry. Explain some of the most important policy changes and how they would make a significant impact. Yeah, there's there's a couple of things that, that we can do that would essentially shut this system down within a very short time. And we're kind of on track 
to some of them happening. That's the good news. Um, so enforcement is important. Um, you know, nobody loves the Internal Revenue Service. And in fact, many middle income and low income people feel a burden right now because you're more likely to be audited if you use an earned income credit than you are if you're using one of these fancy trusts and you're a billionaire. But part of the solution is to rebuild the decimated oversight capacity of the IRS. They, the you know the ability to follow the money and understand and and close down some of these tax dodges uh, has been decimated. And you know President Biden has propo- proposed you know reinvesting in in enforcement. So that is actually one of the important fixes. Um, another is transparency. Who owns these corporations? Who owns these shell entities? Um, uh, at the end of last year, Congress passed law called the Corporate Transparency Act, which would require corporations to disclose who their real beneficial owners are. And that would go a long way. Uh, and so now we're making sure that that law has real meaning, uh, that some of the loopholes in it are closed, like the fact that people can use trusts to avoid uh, that law. But transparency is huge. And third, Congress can actually just close down some of the worst abuses, some of the uh, provisions, some of the trusts, some of the transactions that are only to hide money uh, should just be outlawed. Um, and actually, even there's legislation pending now to do just that. So if we did those three things, we would go a long way to cleaning up uh, the system in the U.S., and then we just need to come together across borders, and uh, you know have a system of global transparency. And if we start with England, uh, who has enormous power in the global system, the U.S. and the U.K. together uh, could lead the way toward completely shutting down this hidden wealth apparatus for a number of reasons, but having to do with England's you know. Uh, prominent role in the empire, a lot of these commonwealth countries still are among the greatest tax havens. Anyway, so I think get our own house in order and then work across nations to have a system of transparency and rules uh, like a global corporate minimum tax, uh, like a law banning corporations that have no disclosure as to who their owners are. That that could be it would be game over for this hidden wealth system in a in a few short years so enforce the law number one transparency uh who owns the, the money and where it is and then congress you're saying could close down the worst abuses of this uh system but many will say yeah but aren't isn't one of the problems that that uh congressional candidates and office holders are dependent on the donations of these very people. And so how uh, they've also shaped the law and, and kept these things from happening. How do we deal with the influence of these, of these wealth hoarders, if you will, on uh, public policy? Yeah. Well, you're, you're right in that they will use their wealth and power. That's what one role that the wealth defense industry does is they lobby on behalf of that that constituency. Uh, again, the good news is uh, 70, 80% of the public actually support a lot of the proposals to tax wealth at the high level 
And my, my hope in writing this book is people understand there is a separate tax system for the super wealthy. And there's really a whole other set of rules and manipulations and games that that top one-tenth of 1% is using and that we demand that our elected officials uh, fix that. And, you know, we're really talking about, you know, going to our members of Congress who, who obviously do listen to big money more than they listen to voters a lot, but say, look, are you, are you, it's, it's a pretty powerful co- contrast. Are you with the top one-tenth of 1% who are dodging their taxes or are you with the rest of society? And uh, I think that the awakening of voters about this issue will will be key to, to transforming it. Uh, I think most people don't understand how the system works, and I'm trying to shine a light on the sort of behind-the-scenes aspects of this. Well, your book shines a big light on how the system works, and and uh, the more people who see that will uh, hopefully respond in that way and tell their elected officials what they expected them to do. Your epilogue is entitled Grads, don't work for the billionaire wealth defense industry. And this wonderful uh, essay at the end of your book is a graduation address to the Harvard Business School class of 2021, uh, which I guess hasn't happened yet. Uh, but you have spoken at the Harvard Business School. And and if you were able to give this address <laughs> uh, this year, and there's still time for them to ask you to give, give the address, uh, what do you expect? What do you think there was, would you say, what would you say in this address? And what do you think would be the response? Well, uh, yeah, as, as you point out, Jim, it's not too late for them to invite me. I'm keeping the, keeping the date open on my calendar to, to give the commencement address. Um, but my message really actually comes out of something else that's given me hope, which is this system is cracking. This system of wealth defense industry, people helping the super rich, is cracking. There are people who are defecting from it. They are walking away from doing this work after decades. Uh, some of them are leaking data, and some of them are working with lawmakers to figure out how to close down the system. So within this system, and the other thing I'll say is part of my commencement address is to tell young people there are many other opportunities, you know, as the poet Mary Oliver, you know, what are you going to do with this one precious life that you've been given. And my message is don't use that precious life to help the super rich get richer. Don't work for the billionaires. Don't work for the wealth defense industry. You know, help build the commonwealth, uh, help build neighborhood organizations, help, you know, apply your gifts in another way. And, and, and my experience is there are a lot of young people who are in these schools and they're maybe hoping that they're going to get, you know, very high salaries when they graduate and work in finance. Um, and some of them have said to me, well, I'll just work for the devil for 10 years and then I'll make enough money that I can do whatever I want. And my response to that is, no, don't work for them. You know, you might get locked in, you might get sucked in, you might be stuck with a standard of living and a, and, and a, and a need to stay in that job and it's going to be soul crushing. Uh, so don't don't work there. Br- apply your gifts in another way. And there are a lot of young people I find who are who are choosing a different path. Um, and part of that's how we're going to make the change to this whole sector. Soul crushing, uh, good word. And 
soul flourishing is what this podcast tries to be about. And you're raising here, I love this address that I still hope you're invited to give uh, at the Harvard Business School, because uh, you're addressing the issue of vocation. And this book, this book is not just an analysis of a system. This is a book really about vocation. And, and your vocation comes right out of your story in your family and all of our vocations are what's really important. I often have my students, I've taught at places like this too, and I often say there's a difference in, in vocation and career. <laughs> career is just uh, assembling your assets and resume and starting at the highest rung of a ladder and rising. But vocation is, is what is in your gut, what's in your soul. What do you lose track of time when you're doing? What's that down deep stuff? Uh, even what's your gift, you know, and and uh, part of your history has given you this gift of this vocation, uh, and you're really challenging the vocation of these students and the vocation of a society. So it's more than economics; it's it's about you know what's what's important to to who we are and what we do, and whether our souls will be crushed, or whether in fact we can live and act in ways that allow our souls to thrive. You know, it's it comes again. I in the process of writing this book, I interviewed a number of people who've spent their entire adult lives working in this wealth defense industry, and they looked me right in the eye and said, "God, if I could do it over again, I would never have done that." And I'm thinking, you're, you know, you're in your 60s, and you're looking back over your whole life. Uh, so that's the that's that's the message I'm bringing to the younger people is. Uh, follow follow a, a different vocation. <laughs> well, this is the best book about the wealth defense industry that I've seen, and also really a book about how to determine what our own vocation uh, really, really is. So, Chuck, it's uh, wonderful to connect again, and uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for this wonderful conversation, Jim. To hear more from Chuck Collins, follow him on Twitter at Chuck 99 to 1, Chuck 99 to 1, and buy The Wealth Hoarders at wealthhoarders.com, wealthhoarders.com. For more Soul of a Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter if you'd like, at Jim Wallace. Blessings on all of you for the soul of the nation.